our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the aisle, Kenny, Will, we'll pick those up and we'll pray for you this week. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose. It's not an open-ended promise. It has conditions to it. Well, what a glorious promise it is for the believer in Jesus Christ that all things that happen in your life and in mine, good and bad, God works in them to produce an eternal weight of glory. Jerry Bridges wrote many helpful books in his faithful ministry before he went to be with the Lord. And one that sticks out in my mind as I think about Romans 8, 28, is his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. He begins that book by describing one of the most traumatic moments in his life. He wrote, when I was 14 years old, my mother died suddenly without warning. I was in the adjoining room and rushed in just in time to see her gasp her last breath. I was stunned and devastated. My older brother was away at school and my dad was too stricken with grief himself to, uh, to, to be able to help me. Worst of all, I did not know how to turn to God in times of trouble. I was alone in my adversity. Candidly, Bridges admits that learning to trust God in adversity has been a slow and difficult process that is ongoing. The pervasive nature of suffering and heartache, even among believers, leads to the basic questions about life. Does God actually control the circumstances of our lives? Or do bad things just happen because we live in a fallen, messed up world? If God is in control of all things, then why did he let blank happen? Why did he let my spouse leave? Why did he let my child rebel? Why did my job end with such rancor and hurt? And then there's sickness. Years ago, I read about a pastor who visited with a young mother who had a seven-year-old son who was in a long, painful battle with cancer. She showed the pastor a picture of little Michael. He was a beautiful child who loved life and loved everyone. His mother and father prayed and prayed for healing and earnestly believed that it would come. But they saw their little son lose his hair. They saw his body shrivel up like a skeleton and then become so bloated that he could hardly see out of his eyes. When the doctors exhausted all that they can do, all that they could do, she and her husband took him to Mexico for alternative treatments, and he died there. She said the hardest thing she ever had to do was cancel his ticket, get on the airplane and leave his body to be shipped home in a casket later. She wanted to know, why did this happen? Why didn't God answer my prayers? Does God not keep his promises? Is he really good? She's not the first one to question God. I was reminded of Gideon in the book of Judges who said, oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, then why has all of this happened? Maybe you're wondering the same thing this morning. Paul wrote, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I'm fully known. 
Uh, in that reference from 1 Corinthians 13, now refers to this present age. Now we see through um, a glass darkly and then refers to heaven and the eternal state. The mirrors in the first century were not all that good. They were made of polished metal and so any kind of image was blurred indeed. They gave one a distorted view at best. And Paul is saying that our present knowledge is partial and incomplete, but our future in Christ will be clear and comprehensive. I'm drawn back to Romans 8.28 for some much needed perspective on suffering in our life. One of the greatest promises in the Bible is found here, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, I hope that is your promise. I hope that is your treasure. And I want to kind of hang my thoughts on three points this morning. First would be confidence. It gives us confidence, this verse. Confidence when life is hard. Confidence when life is hard. Paul writes, and we know. Every Christian faces discouragement. Every Christian faces sorrows. Every Christian faces setbacks. And our response to them when they come should be, and we know. We know. Romans 8.28 was written by a man who knew a little about suffering. Paul doesn't say, and we feel. He doesn't even say, and we understand, because there's so much that we don't. He says, we know, oida in the Greek, to know instinctively. Our faith in the living God is the greatest, uh, is the greatest security we can know. Because when we believe him, when we trust him, even when we don't know the outcome, we know that we're following along with Hebrews 11:6 that without faith it's impossible to please God because he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him and trust him. Our faith in the living God is the greatest security we can know. And this promise is set within the context of groaning, just a reminder that we're always looking at where we are in the book of Romans. We are moving at a snail's pace, granted, It'll pick up eventually, but there's much for us to see right here. In the context, let's back up to verse 18, get a running start. The sufferings of this present time, he says, we know about them, some more than others. Some are dealing with them uh, right now in a white hot type of uh, fashion. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves, we groan inwardly, don't we? Verse 26, and this is wonderful, the Spirit of God who dwells within every believer. You don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Christ, verse 9 says. The Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings. Our groanings, the Spirit of God takes before the presence of the Father. 
with words too deep to be uttered. Verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints. That's the believer according to the will of God. So the reason we preach line by line, precept by precept from the text of Scripture is so that our minds would be illumined and God would guide our hearts and we would begin to live with assurance and get a taste of the joy of walking with the God who does such things for us. It is tragic to see how many people assemble in churches with so little confidence, with so little assurance. I'm not talking about a pep rally. I'm talking about a heart that is illumined with the truth of God, that rests in the promises of God, that savors the truth of God, whose faith is built on the word and not the fleeting, um, flimsy substitutes that are all around us. It's tragic to see those who assemble with their church week after week and yet live their lives with, without assurance. What do you mean? Well, I mean that when you talk to somebody and you begin to talk about your faith and unpack it a little bit, you say, you know, um, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Well, I, I go to this church. It's the extent of their answer. Well, that's wonderful, but that's not going to do you much at the judgment. And so there's no sense of confidence or assurance that my hope is in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross paid for my sins. And of all the messages and of all the people I could follow in this world, I've cast my lot upon Him. And I have found the more I read the Bible, He's the most trustworthy person I've ever known. And I stand on His promises. You want to be growing in that kind of confidence and assurance, not to speak it as a parent would speak from a cage, but as one who's really been set on fire by these things and to stand on the truth of God. Many would say, even church people, I've talked to them through the years. What's your assurance of going to heaven? Well, I sure hope I go. There is much more for the believer. There is an assurance that these things are written, that we might know that we have eternal life. So please don't mistake assurance, which God desires for every child to have, to possess and enjoy. Please don't confuse assurance with arrogance. I'm not the least bit interested in that. That's sinful. But there is an assurance that we should have, a confidence that we should have, an assurance that leads not only to confidence, but humility. See, if you're, if you're trusting in a crucified Savior, there's little room for boasting. There's no room for boasting. Our security is not in our performance, but in His grace. God guarantees the destiny of those who trust in Jesus Christ, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there is a confidence that I pray that you have. I see it in episodes in the Bible. I think of Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar built the monument, said everybody's going to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, we're not bowing. Oh, well, it's going to cost you. We're not bowing. And so Nebuchadnezzar confronted them. They said, and they responded to him, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire. He had said, you're going in the fire. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, even if we go into the fire, he will deliver us out of his hand, O king. And then verse 18, but if not, (laughs) be it known, we are not bowing because our allegiance is is to our God. I think of the last stanza in that wonderful modern hymn, In Christ Alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. That's the kind of confidence I pray that would be established in each one of our hearts as we think about Romans 8:28. He is able, he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or think. And that we have a confidence that if the slats are cut out from my life, God still reigns. He's my treasure. He's my portion. He's my hope. Notice with me, secondly, conditions behind this promise. Because it's, it doesn't say everything works out good. That's not what it says. It's not a, a wide open promise to where everybody can claim it. Sometimes I'll hear even this verse referenced in TV by people who really don't even have a saving relationship with Christ. That's, that promise is not, is not for the outsider. And the parameters are given, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. You could be assured if you love God and that's established through a saving relationship with Christ and you're called according to his purpose, which we'll unpack in just a moment, you can be assured that everything that comes into your life has passed through the hands of our sovereign God who is good. What does it mean when it says all things work together for good. Does it mean you'll be healthy and wealthy and satisfied with everything? Does it mean you'll be successful and appreciated and happy every moment of your life? That's not Christianity. Do I need to remind us that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He said to his disciples, there come a time where they will kick you out of the synagogues and even take your life and think they're doing God a favor by doing so. Be assured I'm with you even then. Since the path of following Jesus is marked by suffering, it's marked by personal failures, it's marked by setbacks, it's it's marked by profound disappointments. What does good mean? if it doesn't mean wealth and health and admiration and success. He's referring to our ultimate destiny. That's what he's referring to. And it's not in this world. Paul is not saying that all things are good. Sin is not good. Evil is not good. The devil is not good. What Hamas did in Israel 10 days ago or so, that's not good. Neither does it say that God causes all things. God is not the author of sin, not the author, uh, not the author of, uh, or participant in evil. 
He uses evil for his purposes. So God is harmonizing all things for the good of believers, for the ultimate purpose of glory, his glory, and that we would be glorified with him. He's constantly working. And that's that he works all things together. It's in the present tense. He's continually working. And so this must include good things and even bad things. We can find help in the next verse, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That's his ultimate purpose. I remember early in my seminary days hearing a message that really gripped me. And I've used this phrase before, that in salvation, God has picked us up out of the muck and mire of our sin and placed us on his eternal trophy case to shine for all of eternity. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But that's the reality that Scripture holds up for us, that he has redeemed us in that way. To make us like Jesus Christ is what Paul means by good. And sometimes that means hard days, doesn't it? If you do not have in your thinking that what it means to be a Christian is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and that by God's design and providence, he will lead you through dark valleys, you'll be disillusioned. You'll feel like you've been ripped off. It's been a bait and switch. All these people were telling you, you needed to receive Jesus Christ, and sufferings come, and all, all of a sudden, I don't like that. I don't like this. Thinking that it's somehow not part of the package. You'll be disillusioned. Notice with me context in the future here. Verse 32 in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He spared his own son. He gave his own son in suffering. Who's to be condemned? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing. So the conditions behind this promise are, are you called according to his purpose? And do you love God? Those are the conditions. Do you love God? Not the concept about God. This really isn't a question about whether you're religious or not. They, do, you, do you love God, which is the greatest commandment according to Jesus? Do you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength? What would that look like if we really love God in that way? What would this church look like if we all loved God in that way? What would our families look like and our neighborhoods look like if we love God in that way? That is the call. R.C. Sproul once said that the ultimate motivator for Christian service, Christian ministry, and Christian obedience is a personal love for God. I pray that you love him and that you know him. The believer's love for God is ultimately due to God's purpose in calling them to salvation. When we think back of what God has done in our lives, we look back at, as a believer, at the moment his grace was revealed to us and we began to taste of what it meant to do the will of God, the thrill of actually seeing promises in scripture intersecting with our life and that our hearts 
burned within us to know the Lord and to love him. This really sets the stage, placing this promise that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Let's go back to verse 29 and 30 because I told you a couple weeks ago I was gonna spend a month on 29 and 30. Oh man, isn't that too much time? No, we, we need to plow through these verses. I feel pretty strongly about that. I hope you will too at the end say, wow, I'm really glad you took it slow and didn't blow by it. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ, the called according to his purpose? And here we find a golden chain of five links, this order of salvation. He mentions foreknew, whom he foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, it means to know previously. It means to set love upon in advance, to know someone. It's not a forecast. This is speaking of God in eternity past, setting his love on you, believer. Jesus said in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Then he goes on in verse 29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Before time began, eternity, when God chose us to be his own, to be conformed into the image of Christ, Predestination means to determine before the journey begins. He's the author of our salvation. Heaven is populated with the redeemed, bearing the likeness of Jesus Christ. I remember hearing one country preacher say on the radio, I was listening to a sermon, maybe you remember Brother Kennedy. He says, don't take predestination away from me. Don't take it away from me with the dramatic draw. It's my only hope of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's how point blank it's stated in verse 29. And there's a, a reference here to our sanctification. That means to be conformed into the image, to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes. This is something that's ongoing in our life. God is working on us. Why? What is a, to be called according to his purpose is that he's conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. Take that into your suffering, believer. Take that into your bad days. Say, God's working on me. He's working on me to, to make me into the image of Christ. He mentions the called next. This is an effectual call. He drew us to himself in real time. He brought us to himself through the preaching of the gospel. Not the way a magnet would suck up iron filings, but in the course of, of life, God called us to himself. And we heard the gospel, the gospel of salvation, and we believed upon him. And so there is not this sense of being trampled, but one. Well, how does that work out? You know, you're talking in this realm of God's eternal choice in eternity past. I, you know, is that well represented in the Bible? I want to prove over the next month it is. 
And all, my, my purpose in this is that we would be exposed to this as a church, that God would be pleased to establish some tent pegs on some doctrinal uh, issues that need to be nailed down. And if at the end of it, you're looking into the Bible more than you've ever looked into it before, that's my goal. I want you reading the Bible. So that's how we're going to approach that. So, you know, does he choose everybody? Obviously not. He doesn't. What, what kind of evangelism is that? Well, I'm wanting to make the case that's the evangelism the apostles used. My favorite is Spurgeon, though. We believe in the well-meant offer of the gospel. High and low, far and wide, everybody on this earth, it is the conviction of this church, it needs to hear the gospel, whether it's our neighbor or the nations. But I love Spurgeon's response. He presented the free will, the free offer of the, of the gospel to lost men and women with persistence and passion. May that be true of us. He said on one occasion, tell me, sir, whom did Christ die for? Will you answer me a question or two? And I will tell you whether he died for you. Do you want a savior? Do you feel that you need a savior? Are you this morning conscious of your sin? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you are lost? That Christ died for you and you, you will be saved? Are you the, this morning conscious that you have no hope in the world but Jesus Christ? Do you feel that you of yourself cannot offer an atonement, a payment for your sin that could satisfy God's justice? Have you given up on all confidence in yourself? And can you say upon your bended knees, Lord, save me or I perish? Christ died for you, Spurgeon said. That's your heart disposition. He died for you. And the invitation, the calling of the gospel is that you would come to him this morning repenting of your sins and believing on his holy name. And you will be saved. Justified. Called, justified. And then notice, lastly, glorified. I'll just say this quickly. Why would he speak of glory in the past tense? Why would he speak of the believer's glory in the past tense as if it's already happened when it hasn't? Glory, to be glorified, means to be in heaven with God forever. Why would he speak of that as a past happening? I think the commentators are right who say that so certain is the promise, Paul considers it done. It's done. Let me mention one other thing and we'll close. Thirdly, comfort and hope no matter what may come. I want to go back to this processing this promise. Believers are filled with hope because the Spirit prays according to the will of God and His requests are always answered. The central goal of the Spirit's prayers is that we, as followers of Christ, would become conformed into the image of His Son. And we can be confident that this will be our destiny because God works all things according to his purposes for the good of his children. So how am I to understand God's good use of good and gracious gracious provision and his use of things that are bad, even evil in our lives? 
This starts with the attributes of God. All things is comprehensive. God works all things. So let's begin with God, who is the ultimate good, his own person, our dependence upon him. His grace is sufficient for us. His wisdom, working in all the details of life. Do you see the hand of God moving in your life as you reflect back on your journey? Do you see the wisdom of God closing this door, opening this door? Shutting down this, opening up that? You should. And to give thanks for God's good, goodness and His wisdom, His kindness leads us to repentance, His faithfulness, His word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, His holy angels. How often Scripture speaks of angels being messengers of God to do His bidding, to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. And then the, the body of Christ. God has saved us and put us in a body with brothers and sisters so we can learn how to love, we can learn how to serve, we can learn how to give, we can learn all the things that God has called us to do as followers of Christ. Even evil things to work for our good. Many of the things that we do and that happen to us are either evil or at best worthless, yet in his wisdom and power, our heavenly Father will turn even the worst of such things to our ultimate good. Even if that, we don't ever understand that. This becomes a soft pillow for us to rest our head. All things, changes in weather, change, traffic jams, brief conversations in the hall that can be life-changing, meetings that change the direction of your life, difficult trials, loss of job, relationships that either prosper or wither, lost health, even cancer. And sometimes we wonder how in the world can this be for good? I thought of Daniel walking down the corridor to the lion's den. Here's a brother who opened up his window three times a day and sought the Lord in prayer, had been faithful in the foreign land of Babylon. And for his faithfulness, he was sentenced to the lion's den. I, I imagine he, he had to be struggling, don't you? Why am I going in the pit, Lord? And he walked on in faith. And God showed up in the lion's den and closed their mouths and the Lord saved him. Suffering of all types, sickness. Thomas Watson observed, a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. Suffering can teach us to hate our sin because we see what it does. I think that's what's behind understanding Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, where we read the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Why was he weeping? Well, it wasn't because he would never see Lazarus again. <laughs> he was gonna raise him in just a moment. I really believe what's behind Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus is that Jesus saw the effects of sin on human beings. The wages of sin is 
death. And Jesus wept and then raised him, for he's the resurrection and the life. Lazarus would later die, but on that day, he came alive. I think of God's discipline. That's painful. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines as a son, Hebrews 12 tells us. And the the seasoned words of Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's the mark of a true believer. I'm all over the place and God had to reel me in. Now I'm learning to walk in obedience. In Psalm 32, don't be like the horse who needs bit and bridle to stay in check. The psalmist said, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Even in our failures, he works all things together for good. Even in temptations. To shatter spiritual pride. To show us our weaknesses. To long for our future glory. We sang this morning, save to sin no more. To shatter our pride. I was reminded of little Martha Taft who introduced herself to her first grade class in Cincinnati and she said, my name is Martha Bowers Taft. My great-grandfather was the President of the United States. My grandfather was a United States Senator. My father uh, is the ambassador to Ireland and I'm a Girl Scout. (laughs) Maybe we don't look like much, but that's the point. Paul says he takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I want you to think about that. I think a good time in our worship service would be at the beginning when we're kind of mingling and touching base and just to look around the room and say, look what God's done here. In his wisdom, how he's brought us together. But I think another time to do that is during the offertory. And the piano's playing and we think, wow, I've been saved by the grace of God and I'm put in this body. Look at my brothers and sisters all around me. And I might grow. I might be cared for and that needs would be met in my life that otherwise wouldn't be. God is working these things together, the good things and what we would call the bad things, even the evil things. In heaven, the mysteries of life will be made clear to us if they're even still an issue. <laughs> I believe C.S. Lewis's words really capture the resolve of that day. In heaven, we won't ask why. Instead, we'll say, of course. Of course. So, is this promise yours? I hope it is. It can be yours through Christ. It can be yours through a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you come to the place in your life where you've acknowledged that he is Lord? Do you love him? We can't in our own power. 
We love because he first loved us. The whole message of a crucified Savior, his life was so compelling. His teaching remains the most relevant. His death was a one of a kind sacrifice to pay for sins. Have you come to the point in your life where you've trusted him? Where you've turned from your sins and say, Lord, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Do you see God's hand working in your life? Maybe even this morning guiding you to a saving relationship with him. Do you thank God for how he is working in your life? I pray so. For all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Lord, what a privilege to open our Bibles this morning and to read words like that. And I don't know all the weight of this day in the hearts of your people, those listening on live stream, but I would pray that we would be lifted by that promise. It's not, it's not empty, it's not empty words. This really does provide the foundation of what we believe that all we are and hope to be is found in Christ and in him alone. Thank you, Lord, for bringing hard days that we might long for heaven. Thank you for the blessings that we enjoy every, every day that make this journey sweet. And I would pray that our allegiance would be in Christ alone. So lead in this, these closing moments. May, may it be a time of commitment. May it be a time of surrender. May it be a time of praise and gratitude. Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, I'm here at the front. Would love to pray with you. But may we all be surrendered to him as we sing.